Let's have you grab your Bibles and turn to Colossians. It's a book in the New Testament. Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. As you guys are turning there, if I haven't personally met you, my name's Howard. I'm one of the leaders here. Uh, We've been going through a series on work. And for those of you that say, I don't come to church listening to something about work. Can you finish this up? You'll be glad to know this is the last sermon in the series on work. But amen. Thank you, Kenny. What we find, though, is all this work makes us look for a Savior. I want you to turn to the person next to you, or if you don't have anybody next to you, someone behind you. I want you to think back in your life to a job that you had. And if you're a child here today, maybe you can think of a chore that mom gave you. But tell somebody next to you kind of your worst job you ever had or your worst chore. Everybody do that. Tell them what your worst job was. Got to tell somebody, Sasha, either behind or front. Come on now. A chore. If you're married, maybe you got to tell your spouse, I've never liked doing this thing. Well, as you think back in your memory banks to that, that terrible chore that you had, let me tell you a little bit about the work history of your pastor. If I go back in time, uh, my first job wasn't my worst job. It was like some of you. It was doing a job that was a, something a sixth grader could do. I was living by the Jersey Shore in a little city called Wildwood, and I got a job in sixth grade delivering newspapers. I'd go out on the beach on a hot day with my flip-flops, and I would sell the local news, nothing like it. And I'd have to sell it for a dime. You could get a newspaper for a dime. Well, my parents, my dad was a pastor, and my my dad came to me one day and said, Howard, there's a, a lady in our church. She doesn't come a lot. She's sick a lot. Her name is Miss Pitt. And I go, Dad, where are you going with this? He says, well, she needs someone to help her with some chores. And you'll get a little bit of money so you can go play all the arcade games on the boardwalk. I said, I'd like to get that job, Dad. Well, there I was in seventh grade meeting Miss Pitt. She lived in an apartment. She came to church about once every eight or nine weeks and always had a grumpy look on her face. When I walked into her home, I noticed she had three cats. One of them was blind and that cat was kind of wandering around disoriented. And I looked at her and I said, what do, what do you want me to do, Miss Pitts? And she says, well, listen, I can't get down on my knees and I'm going to need you to go to every floor in the home because my cats make quite a mess. In fact, as I looked around, that whole apartment looked kind of like a litter box. She said, you're going to need to get your hands and knees with a bucket of soapy water and clean the linoleum after you sweep it up and then vacuum the home and I'll give you a little couple of dollars. And I thought, oh, what kind of a job is that? But you know what? I got on my hands and knees. And I remember cleaning that first time, thinking, I don't think I want to ever come back. But as I sat waiting for mom and dad to pick me up from the job, Miss Pitt started to share with me about her loneliness, about her losses. Uh, She even started to share with me things she didn't like about my dad. His sermons are too long. I don't agree with everything he says. And I started to hear from a woman her problems with Christianity. And I listened. And I thought, you know what? The work was no fun, but I really... She's an interesting woman. This is a a woman that's so lonely. 
I would go back in seventh grade and in eighth grade learning to listen to someone who had lost a lot, who really needed help. In ninth grade, I started a lawn business in our housing development, and I would do weed eating, and I would mow lawns. And from ninth to eleventh grade, it was always after the work talking to people, a lot of them older that just simply wanted to talk. And as I think about other jobs that I've had in my life, I was a dishwasher at a pizza hut. I waited tables. I worked for a construction agency running a jackhammer. Dave, I've run a jackhammer, all right? I know you always thought I had soft hands, but I've done that once. If you don't know, Dave runs a uh, concrete company. I sold knives. I did maintenance for a high school. I graded papers. I telemarketed. I worked on a ranch bucking hay and catching chickens in the mountains of California. I worked two years as a nurse assistant on an AIDS floor, 20 years as an RN, most in management, middle management. I served as an Air Force officer and assistant pastor, and now I'm here as your pastor. And you know what I thought? God has something going on. I started my work career giving out news. And today, would you please stand? Because I'm going to give you some good news about work. Colossians chapter 3, verse 17. Does the Bible have good news about work? Oh, yes, it does. Verse 17 says this, And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. And then we're going to go down to verse 22, because it's going to talk about what it's like to work. Slaves, or bondservants, as it says in some of your Bibles, Obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You're serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done. And there's no partiality. Masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Would you pray with me? Lord, as we all think back on our work, or maybe some of the kids here are thinking of those chores they just don't enjoy, Lord, help us through this scripture to see that you've given us the work that you've assigned to us. Lord, because of your mercy and grace, would you send your spirit, help us to understand the good news of grace even about our work. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, with your Bibles open, please be seated. John did such a great job last week. I've heard multiple people say that he really helped us to see that work, if we put it into the new story of how God has come and reversed the curse of sin and all those thorns and thistles in the world, if we enter into the story of how Christ has come, we're going to see things differently. He talked about a new story, a new way of conceiving work. See, we were saved from our sin, not just so we would say, well, I'm so glad I'm not guilty, but God says, now you can look around. I've saved you from your sin for work. You can benefit people now. It's not all about you. It's about other people. What we're going to see today, and if you're a visitor today, you can see this in your bulletin, we're going to simply look at two things. The title of our talk today is The Good News About Work, Part 2 not just a story that John talked about, but we're going to see today two things simply. God gives us a new compass. You all know what that is, right? 
God gives us a new compass for work. And secondly, he gives us a new power for work. You're going to find out from Colossians that work is not something you've got to do. I know it feels like that half the time. You're going to find out that with this new power, it's something you get to do because of the gospel of grace. Let's think about a compass. You all have seen one of these things. It's a navigational instrument to determine direction. We know this. What I didn't know, though, in Amir Azel, who's a Harvard scholar on the history of science, he has spent his whole life thinking about when we discover things out there in the world, and he said this, and it blew my mind, the compass was the most important technological invention since the wheel. That's a pretty high claim because an awful lot of things have been created. Why would he say that? Well, he's written an awful lot and he's very well renowned and respected. He said up until the 1300s, everybody would go out to sea and they'd look at the North Star. You could look at that North Star and you could find your way, but what do you do on a cloudy night? What do you do on a week of cloudy nights? And this happens, by the way, when we work. We get all excited to get into work and after about an hour... You ever just sitting there during the work going, what is going on? You kind of lost direction. Lost any sense of meaning or joy or you start to get angry about something. Well, he said in the 1300s, this simple new device, the magnetic compass, which meant it's always going to point north because of the magnetic pull of the earth. He said what happened is this new little device would determine your direction so quickly and accurately any time of the day or night and under any condition, the land, the sea, and later even up in the air. It opened up for the world exploration, discovery, trade, and work. And how did it do it? It mainly freed the sailors who always had to stay real close to the coastline. They could now go far out into the oceans to discover. I don't know if you agree or disagree with this historian, But I do know this, the Lord, like a compass, orients our lives through the Scripture. So number one is this, the good news of the Lord Christ gives us a new compass for work. A new compass for work. Let's see what it says in the Scripture about this again. Colossians 3.17, it says, And whatever you do, in word or deed... Do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Do you see the direction there? Giving thanks to God through Him. Slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart. Fearing the Lord. There's another direction. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord. There's another direction. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You're serving the Lord Christ. This is a compass. It's, it's all about direction. Now, some of you might be shocked at the reading of this. Did you notice that it actually says slaves? Whenever you're reading the scripture, you don't want to just react to it. You want to go back in time and say to yourself, why would Paul talk about slaves and masters? Because when I hear slaves and masters living in the South, I get a little reactionary. But that's putting my thoughts into the scripture. You can't take a compass and start to try to make the compass go where you want it to. The compass is always going to point north. You've got to adjust your thinking. So if we go back 2,000 years to the Roman Empire, 
You need to understand this is not talking about racial slavery. It's not talking about racial slavery. What it's talking about is Roman Empire slavery. So it's not the African slave trade, which was terrible, but it was really indentured servants, which had nothing to do with race, and it did not last a lifetime for most of these servants. In fact, if you go back to the history of the time, most people living in Colossae, this city, would have been slaves. The doctors were slaves. The high government officials were slaves. But they wouldn't have used that word. They would have used the word, we're employees. Like, we're not the boss. Now, anybody in here an employee? Or have you ever been an employee? We're not talking about racial slavery. This is amazing, an amazing compass we're going to get for anyone who experiences employment. Even those of you that are retired, you still work. You still expend your energy. So let's not be shocked and take our compass and get all mad at the Bible. Let's read it for what it is and realize that we're going to have to orient ourselves really in four directions when we read through this. Number one, here's the first direction. What constitutes work? And the four directions are going to be these. What constitutes work? Why do we work? How do we work? And who is he talking about that does the work? So what constitutes work? We've said this in the series, but it says it here in Scripture. Whatever you do, in word and in deed. I know there's a big fight, blue-collar, white-collar. Some people will ask me, is our church a blue-collar or a white-collar church? And I'll say, we're, we're a church that's full of all flavors. Some people think, well, I use my brain. I'm so smart. I, I look down on people that run jackhammers and catch chickens. Well, we ought not to do that. You see, our work, those of us that are using words, those of you that are, that are doing deeds, it all matters. Our work is whenever you expend energy with your lips or your life, with your words or with your deeds in a particular domain. And you are put there by God in that unique domain of work to draw out its potential for the benefit of others. I've really been helped by Tommy Nelson, who's written a lot about work. He's a pastor and Tim Keller, who's in our own denomination, they have written so much about work. And if you want to keep doing some reading on that, I highly recommend their books. The scripture, though, says this, words and deeds. Whenever you see big words like that, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a considered a spectrum term. What's work, God? The whole spectrum. All your words, all your deeds. Well, if we understand what work is, the second direction we want to look at is why do we work? As human beings made in the image of God, purpose matters to us. If we're doing a task and it doesn't have any meaning, it really matters to us. So we have to ask ourselves, why work? There's an old saying that says, where the focus goes, the energy flows. You ever heard that before? And this is really important when we work. Where the focus goes, the energy flows. Let's get the focus really clear on why we work. Look at verse 17. Do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Whenever you do a task, is that your focus? Notice it says the Lord Jesus. He's the authority that directs our work. He defines our work. He even determines where you work right now and is involved in the details of your work. Another thing about why we work, it says fearing the Lord, verse 22. 
Some of you think of the living God as, oh no, he's just going to zap me. Think of fear as respecting someone who loves you so much. If you were to think of someone in your life that has given you love when you did not deserve it, and they won't stop loving you, it creates in you a deep respect. This is a person you think about often. You're so thankful for. So we are to fear the Lord. Love, with the Christian story, is always the origin, the purpose, and the destiny of the world. So when we work, we work looking at this lovely God. Verse 23 says this, Why do we work? Work as for the Lord. There's the purpose again. i got to go work for Miss Pitts again. The cats have gotten stuff all over this house. Why am I there, God? I'm working as for you. Not ultimately for Miss Pitts and these cats. I'm there for you. We work as for the Lord. Our compass points in a totally, to a totally different audience than we think. It doesn't point to us. It doesn't even point to our boss. Work is for the Lord. And verse 24 has this interesting phrase only used here in the entire Bible. Serving the Lord Christ. Jesus has never called that but here. Serving the Lord Christ. What does it mean? Well, Lord is the master, the top, the one at the top. Christ is the Messiah, the king. It's such a unique phrase. It's kind of like the highest master king. It's trying to remind us when you work, you're going to have a master. But you've got to get your eyes a totally different direction onto the Lord Christ, the master king. The book of Colossians, for those of you that don't think God's a big deal, he's kind of distant from you and he's kind of on the periphery of your life. Over and over, this amazing book will say Jesus Christ is not prominent. You're like, well, prominent sounds pretty good. Oh, not even close. The scripture says that Jesus Christ is preeminent. And there's a big difference between saying, well, I'll add Jesus somewhere in the circle of my life. No, preeminent means he's the center and the circumference. Everywhere you look should be Jesus Christ. So Paul's getting the attention in his letter to say, you know, we're talking right now with your compass about why you work. You work serving the Lord Christ. He is preeminent. He's not just important. He is the ultimate authority. Now remember... Where your focus goes, your energy flows. We talked about work. We talked about why we work. How are we supposed to work? I love how simple it is in verse 21. Give thanks. Thanks. Those of you that are thankful people are people that say, there is something to respond to in my life that is really good. Some of you know thankless people. They're never, they're never thankful. They're always complaining. You ever work with somebody? They're just constantly complaining. That's a person that's really struggling to see that God gives you work and we are to respond to the good that we don't deserve. I want you to think right now and just practice this because maybe you haven't done it for a long time. Think about where you work. Or if you're a child here today, think about chores that mom and dad gives you. Can you thank God for the work he's given you? I know some of you have hard work. Think right now just for a moment. I'm going to just stop my talk for about 30 seconds, and I really want you to, maybe this is the first time you've even done it. Would you take a moment to make the compass of your heart thank the Lord?
for your work. I'm just going to be quiet for 30 seconds. I'm going to thank him for having me be your pastor. Just take 30 seconds. When we thank God for being a student or for having to do the dishes or for doing that job that you just lost that interest in, it reminds us how we're supposed to do our work. The fourth direction is who works. Paul wants to get really clear. Most of us in here are going to be employees, but some of us are going to be in charge of others. Some of you do management. And often if you work for a while and you get older, you're going to be in charge of others. Or if you're running a home, moms, you're managing. You've got a lot of little workers underneath you there. So who works? Two categories. Employees and employers. Let's look at the employees. And boy, Paul gives us some handles here. Not just these ideas about a great compass for work, but he gives us some handles at employees. He tells you if you are an employee, something you've got to start doing. And he tells you really clearly there's something you've got to stop doing. Well, what are we supposed to start doing? Obey your employer in everything. Oh, this is hard, isn't it? Somebody's over you and you have to obey. That means you take your will and you submit it to the will of the one over you. Oh, that's hard. Well, maybe I'll do that with half the things because my boss is crazy. No, in everything. Now, some of you have already thought, wait a second, what if my boss tells me to do something that's unethical? I remember I was managing an ER and the state came, and my upper boss called me and said, Howard, I want you to go a month back and I want you to change data on triage forms. I said, I can't do that, that's falsification. She says, if you don't do it, we're going to be talking about your job. I said, we can't do this. She says, if the state comes and finds, false, finds the information that is there, we could get a million-dollar fine. She hangs up, hangs up the phone, and I'm thinking, I am responsible now for a million-dollar fine or for falsifying. I called her back, and I said, ma'am, I follow Christ. I cannot do this. She slammed the phone down. Now, I'm not trying to say I'm high and mighty, but there are moments in your work when you say, well, God, I'm supposed to obey my employer in everything. No, no, remember the first one? Who am I working for? My ultimate purpose is to work as for the Lord Christ. I can't do that. So in everything, now this, by the way, this boss was in charge of me for another two years, and boy, did she take it out on me. And I had the chance to submit and to in everything follow her will. It was very rare when those things happened in my life. Most of it is just a lot of stuff I didn't enjoy doing. That's what you're supposed to do. Obey your employer in everything. Here's something you're not supposed to do. Don't work only when you're being watched. Don't work only when you're being watched. You have to have a sincerity of heart when you follow Jesus Christ. That means a singularity of heart. You're not going to go through the motions when the boss is watching. Put your back into it when your boss shows up. 
God's saying to us here, we have to have a, a bit of mental and motivational honesty when we are working with pure motives. We're not supposed to be posing when the boss is watching as a pleaser. The style of work we do for Christ is supposed to be pleasing. I wonder if I walked up to your boss, if he looked me in the eye and I said, hey, this person goes to my church, they're my brother and sister in Christ, tell me how they're doing. I wonder if they'd say, honestly, you know this individual? Works real well, but only when I have to constantly supervise them. Would that be you? Would your employer say, boy, do they put their back into it when I supervise them? We are not supposed to be this way. And I'm going to tell you all, I've been mainly in middle management my whole life, which means there's people below me and people above me, and I have struggled with this. <laughs> I have struggled with this not, not to do this. I've often felt that policies and procedures in an organization are just unfair or unrealistic. Are you kidding me? I think so much of the work world has ridiculous things that come down, and there's a lot of parts that I've not liked over the years. But the direction from God is to obey our employers in everything. And not just to work real hard when they're looking at me, but to work real hard for the Lord with a singularity of heart. These are new directions that God gives us in a world that's just out of whack. And if we're honest, our culture has a lot of controlling considerations about work that I think for so many years have influenced me negatively. I grew up with The, the Office. Many of you have watched that show. Or Dilbert. 1989 is when I'm getting into the Air Force and I'm getting involved with learning how to be in leadership. Dilbert comes on the scene. You all know Dilbert. Um, Notice, by the way, the boss. Look at his head. You know, the, the compass God gives us is, hey, when you get a boss, obey him in everything. Yet this is what our culture tells us. The boss looks like a little, little devil, doesn't he? See, Dilbert has influenced a lot of us. In fact, it's in over 2,000 newspapers. It's a million hits a day to the Dilbert website. Scott Adams, who created Dilbert 17 years ago, worked himself in middle management. And he found out how to strip mine our cynicism and frustration and discouragement and fear buried in the workplace. Dilbert, as you know, portrays office politics that stand in the way of productivity, where employees' skills and efforts are not rewarded. But busy work is usually praised. This comic strip, cultural considerations, is filled with incompetent supervisors. And by the way, I've been one of those. Purposeless meetings, you ever have one of those? Ridiculous management fads and increasing downsizing. The boss in this comic strip is never named. By the way, that's very disrespectful. When, when this strip can go from 1989 to the present and they will not name the employer, that's not the compass we get in Scripture where we obey the one that we are under authority in everything. This boss is never named. Yes, he issues directives to employees that are either moronic or demonic, but this principle has emerged that used to be posted all over cubicles and places that I've worked. It's called the Dilbert Principle. It says the most ineffective workers are systematically moved to the place where they can do the least damage, management. Employees 
and employers are so misdirected by culture. The compass is off, and we are not to adjust the compass to fit what we see in the culture. That's been my temptation. We are to adjust our direction to fit the Lord Christ's compass regarding work. Now, we talk to employees. Some of you are employers. And yes, you deserve much more respect. But you're spoken to here. Look at verse 1 in chapter 4. Employers, masters, treat your employees justly and fairly, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. Treat. It means you grant someone working hard under you deliberate care and concern. Let me talk to those of you that are in charge of others. Let me talk to stay-at-home moms that are managing a difficult home. Let me talk to you people that are retired and you're doing some side work. In all of your years of experience, you're giving direction. Let me talk to anyone who is in charge of others. You are meant to absorb a lot more pain than you inflict on those under you. You are meant to disadvantage yourself to advance your employees. Could I walk up to your employees and say, do you think that the person that is over you who goes to my church disadvantages themselves so that you are advantaged? I wonder what they'd say. Would they tell me, you know, he doesn't treat me like property. He treats me like a person. He doesn't treat me like a tool. He treats me like a treasure. Would they say that? Because those of you that are the bosses around here, by treating employees justly and fairly, you honor their inerrant dignity given to them by God. You know, when people quit their jobs, they usually do it because somebody in the workplace, and it's typically their boss, is judging them and making their life miserable. Most people who like their work do so because they feel free to be creative and they're not being managed or controlled by that jerk boss. How do you become an employer treats them, it's because you've, been exper- you've experienced grace. If you've been forgiven and you've experienced grace and you've been treated kindly by the Lord Jesus, by the Lord Christ, you can have that difficult employee that just gets you frustrated and treat them with grace. But the Lord Christ, he's the fixed reference point we look to for our orientation and direction in the workplace. Would someone in your workplace really know that you follow the Lord Christ? Would they even know? Because it's the direction you work that differentiates and distinguishes you. Look, whether you're an employer or an employee, where do we get the power? We've talked about the good news gives us a new compass. Where do we get the power to pull this off? Where do we get the power? You know, a compass works with that magnetic power. It's this interesting north-south magnetic, that, that compass, wherever you hold it, woof, it goes north, right? Where do you get that power? Do you have to self-generate it? Not for the Christian. Look at verse 23. The good news of the Lord Christ gives us a new power. Whatever you do, work heartily. That's a power word. As for the Lord, not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. This is good news. Some of you have gone all week so buried in your work, you had to come here today to hear this. This is good news. You will receive the inheritance as your reward. You're serving the Lord Christ. 
Work is ennobled. In other words, it's not seen as pointless drudgery for the Christian when it's directed to the Lord Christ. Dorothy Sayers was a pastor's daughter. She was one of the first women to ever graduate um, from Oxford. Incredibly intellectual, loves the Lord, and she wrote a lot about work. I want to read to you something that she said about work, and we're thinking now about if we are empowered by Christ, what's our work really to do? Let me read what she said. Dorothy Sayers said this, Work's not primarily a thing one does to live, but the thing one lives to do. It is or it should be the full expression of the worker's faculties, the thing in which he finds spiritual, mental, and bodily satisfaction in the medium in which he offers himself to God. I highly commend to you uh, an essay that she wrote on work. You can find it online. Amazing, amazing direction in this area. There's an ennoblement with work, but what we see here from the scripture is not only is work meaningful and ennobled, it tells us so clearly how we're to work. What sort of energy level, and where do we get it? Do you see what it says there? Heartily. In the Greek it means from the depths and the bottom of your soul. Not half-hearted. Oh, how many shifts that I work in the ER? Twelve hours. Look, after about hour seven or eight, half-hearted. How many shifts have I worked? How many times has your pastor, oh, I'm doing this and this and this, and I got all this energy, and I just half-hearted. That's not what it says. Do your work heartily from the soul. When we work, we are not supposed to focus on our work as the ultimate source or supplier of our identity, of our security. We're supposed to work with His energy, which gives us high energy, and we'll be fully engaged. Be honest about yourself at work. Do you take a little bit too many breaks? And I'm not just talking about getting up for that 15-minute little break. I'm talking about breaks. I mean, there are so many ways to sneak a break these days. And I think I've done them all. I can remember when I was managing the ER, how often I'd go into a room on my rounds and I'd have to turn to a nurse who was at the desk checking Facebook and say, your patient's got chest pain. You want to deal with that? But then right when they went in there, I'd get my phone out and I'd check my Facebook. What a hypocrite, right? Look, I'm not looking down at you. I'm looking at you. We need a power for work. Would you say you work heartily? From the soul, not half-hearted, not always on a break. And you're asking, okay, well, give me a power for this because I struggle. Oh, it's given here. As for the Lord. There it is again. It's a new direction. It's like all of us have within, within us, if we're Christians, a hand grenade. And the pin is stuck in it. If we think, I've got to go to work, I've got to work hard, even the Bible says, I've got to work so hard. No. The pin in that hand grenade can be pulled out by the Spirit if you simply say, I am doing this in your power for you. The pin comes right out of that hand grenade and you will have power. As for the Lord, it's not for your employer. It's not for your mortal master. It's for the Lord Christ. It's for the Lord. For the Lord Christ. 
And it says here, knowing, you've got to engage this mind and reflect a little bit, knowing that from the Lord, you're going to receive an inheritance. Okay, I've got this, this desire to work hard. I've got this grenade in me that's not powerful. Pull the pin out, God. How? Know something. You're going to get a reward. I'm not supposed to be motivated by rewards. I'm just supposed to love you. No, I'm going to give you... Look, you have a reward that's going to empower you not to have to be so stuck in rewarding yourself with your work. Look at this inheritance. Look at this reward. I want you to think of it this way. Think of two women in a sweatshop. And by the way, you go around the, the globe, most of our women on the planet are working very meaningless jobs. But imagine these two women. The first one right there, imagine her. She is in Christ. She is doing her work for Christ. And imagine, if you will, that Christ runs that shop and whispers in her ear and says, look, I want you to work for a year in the sweatshop. I own this business. At the end of your year, I'm going to give you $10 million. The conditions will be hard. 12-hour shifts, 15-minute break. No going on your Facebook here. It'll be hot in the room. No fan. Well, imagine the woman behind her not knowing who really owns the shop and never being promised $10 million. Same work conditions. But the first one says, when I get there this year, I got $10 million. Christian, $10 million is a drop in the ocean of the inheritance that you have for eternity from your God. Oh, look at this power. What's the inheritance, you ask? It's always good in a book when you get a, a cool word like inheritance to see if it's used in the same book. We're going to rewind in Colossians, and I'm just going to read it to you, and you're going to go, what an inheritance. Look what it says in Colossians chapter 1, verse 12 to 14. Watch this closely. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance. You did nothing to get qualified for this inheritance. What's the inheritance of the saints in light? Look at verse 13. He's delivered you from the domain of darkness, transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. What's the inheritance? In whom you have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. If that does not pull the pin out of the hand grenade in your heart so you can say, I got a difficult job, but I'm going to go work because I have an inheritance. When you can go to work and you're forgiven, you can have someone critique you. When you can go to work and say, it just doesn't mean much, but my Savior means the world to me and I have an eternity with him. Oh, we can go to work with a new power. Look, you're going to either exhaust yourself trying to make something of yourself in your work situation, or you will work heartily for the Lord, knowing that from the Lord you have the inheritance of eternal life. <laughs> you can now work from love, not for love. Not for, I want this to mean something. I want to get my money. You can work from love, not for love. Oh, you can untie your identity and your status and your worth and your pleasure from your work, and you're now free to work in his life-giving power. Let me address those of you that are retired. You're still working. And I think for some of you, you just simply need to know that you've been working hardly for the Lord a long time. And retirement often is a time, even though you're doing work and adjusting the compass a bit, you're, you're experiencing a little bit of rest. Life should be viewed as a whole life stewardship, not something we do to live, 
something that we live to do. I really think that God put together the local church so that we will work together. But he takes us during the rest of the week and he equips us to be apprentices for Jesus in his work. And he puts each of us, sending each of us to this unique place in our lives. And when you show up there this week, you're going to show up with a new compass. And you're going to show up remembering a new power. And it's not if you are sent to your little place on the planet. It's not if you're sent. But it's where you are sent and by whom you are sent. I end with a short story. I've always enjoyed jazz growing up. John Coltrane is a saxophone player. Have you heard of this person? You know who this person is, right? Well, did you know, I watched a documentary recently. I think it was Netflix or Amazon. I did not know that he worked so hard with his saxophone and he got addicted to heroin and alcohol. I did not know that. He was haunted, he says, by his work that was kind of under his work as a jazz musician. He tried to manufacture through his music a sense of security and significance and worth. He tried to, through his own power, really prove himself. But his heart was a broken compass. He admits it was directed to his desires, and he thought the alcohol and heroin would empower him. Oh, it didn't. He was withdrawing from his drugs, and he explains that while he was withdrawing, his heart felt directed to God. And he, he did this amazing album called A Love Supreme. In the liner notes, those of you that still remember liner notes, you get an album and there's things written by the person that composed it. Let me read what he said. Because it has everything to do as we end this series with really understanding what our work means and with the grace of God. He says, during the year of 1957, I experienced, by the grace of God, a spiritual awakening which was to lead me to a richer, fuller, and more productive life. At that time, in gratitude, I humbly asked to be given the means and privilege to make others happy through my music. I feel this has been granted through His grace. All praise to God. This album is a humble offering to Him. It's an attempt to say, Thank you, God, through our work, even as we do in our hearts, and with our tongues. And he ends by saying this, may he help and strengthen all men in every good endeavor. He experienced God's love in such a way that liberated him from the work under his work for the sake of the work itself. And it was called grace that liberated him. He finally made music for the sake of music to benefit the listener, to glorify God, his maker. Can that happen for you this week in your work? As little as it is, can you be set free from the work under the work where the chains just fall on the ground and now you're working for the delight of others. You're working for the delight of the work. You're working empowered because you have an eternal inheritance. I'm going to ask our elders to come forward as we prepare for this meal and our worship team. Jesus, before he would do the work of our redemption, met with his friends. Remember what Jesus did for most of his life? He was a carpenter. That means he would create nails, four to six inch nails, and he would create with wood. Nails and wood. He was going to get his friends ready with a meal to strengthen them 
Because just a few days after this meal, actually just the next day after this meal, the carpenter would be nailed to a cross, to wood. Carpenters know how to take nails and to put wood together. Jesus was going to do the work of removing all of our sins and giving us his righteousness. He gathered his friends, and we like to read what Matthew, one of his friends who was in that room that night, said. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, imagine Jesus being there, and he picks up this piece of bread, and after blessing it, he breaks it, getting ready to give it out. Very visual. A lot of tired fishermen, tax collectors, people working hard. He's sitting with his friends, and he just busts this bread apart, and he says, after blessing it, he broke it, he gave it to the disciples, and he said, take and eat, it's my body. He took a cup, and when he had given thanks, by the way, remember when we were reading about work? We've got to just stop sometimes and say thank you. Our Savior, in the midst of getting ready, gives thanks. He says, drink, drink of it, all of you, for it's my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Let's pray and give thanks. Oh, Lord, you've gathered us by your Spirit to walk away from that work, our creativity. Lord, your only son was going to nail himself to wood so that we would never be in bondage to our work and our failure at work and our failure as employees and our failures as employers. The work of our salvation was done. And Lord, would you feed us now and strengthen us to believe this in a world that has such a different compass for work. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.